In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. You may be seated. When I'm preparing a sermon, and it's always a different experience, uh, sometimes it feels like the sermon is already written and I'm just discovering it. If any of you have done any sort of writing, you know when it's just, it's just flowing. And then other times, you know, I'm sitting there and it's Wednesday, it's Thursday, it's Friday, it's Saturday. And it's, it takes everything in me, and Casey probably hears me throwing stuff uh, up in my office in the bedroom, just trying to get a word down. But, but when I'm starting to prepare, when I start, start the process, and the process never really begins or ends, but when I turn my eyes towards uh, the next sermon, the way I'll begin is by simply uh, reading the collect, reading the lessons uh, in search of, a, of the theme or a theme. Now, in Eastertide, it's pretty easy because you know the theme is the resurrection. It's overwhelmingly obvious, but there are other themes as well. Uh, and one way of doing this is by noting, as I'm going through the collect and the lessons, I'll note uh, the reoccurrence of a particular word or a family of words or related words. And today, I noticed pretty much as I, I was doing this, I noticed straight away that in today's propers, there is an emphasis on sight, vision, beholding. A couple of examples, the collect, open we pray thee, the eyes of our faith, that we may behold him in all his redeeming work. The epistle, see, see what love the Father has given us, and then later, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. And then the gospel, I can't read all of them, but a few examples. They thought that they were seeing a ghost. Jesus said, look at my hands and feet. Touch me and see. And he showed them his hands and his feet. And he said, you are witnesses of these things. Vision, sight, beholding. I would contend that vision, both physically and spiritually, is primary. As to the former, as to our natural vision... Uh, allow me to give you some anecdotal evi evidence uh, from my own family. At the Ainsley dinner table, uh, we like to play the question game, or a variant uh, thereof. Uh, we especially like to do this when we have people over for dinner. Uh, in, in fact, it's mandatory. You're going to get grilled by Windsor and Pippa. You're also going to have to endure the Duke of Delafield, which is my dog, uh, jumping into the glass, trying to get in because he wants to eat the food on the table. Uh, but we, we sit down and we play the question game. We ask all different kinds of questions, and a lot of times, you know, they're silly, like things like, would you rather have uh, hands for feet or feet for hands? But one question that has been asked uh, not a few times is this. If you had to give up one of your five senses, which one would it be? Maybe kind of dark for small children to contemplate the loss of a sense, but uh, consider their father. The, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. But, but what happens when we do this, no one ever picks sight. It's, it's usually, I'll just tell you, if you want to know, usually taste or smell. 
That, one of those two is what people pick. And if, if the question is, if you could only keep one sense, it's always vision, right? It's, alway, it's always vision. So, but, but anyways, again, some anecdotal evidence. Now, spiritually, spiritual vision, uh, when we talk scripturally, theologically, sight is crucial. Uh, better theologians than I, which is most of them, have maintained that uh, vision has primacy among other sensory metaphors in the Bible. In Scripture, just if you think back through Scripture, think of the power ascribed to the eye. Think of the emphasis on light and the relationship that light has to sight and to vision. Moreover, it's Eastertide. Consider the Christian hope. And what, what is our hope? What is our confident expectation of the future which anchors us in the present? Hope does not mean wish when you read it in Scripture. But what is our hope? Our hope is the resurrection. That as Jesus was raised up on that first Easter morning, having glorified the humanity which he himself had taken on, so will we be raised the last day in glory and transformed into his likeness. So that's our hope. But what is it, I know a lot of questions today, but what is it that we're raised up for? And what is the means of our transformation into the likeness of Christ? I put it this way often, you're probably sick of me saying this. Why do we exist? To see God. We're raised up for the vision of God. It's by the vision of God that we're transformed in the likeness of Christ. And is the reason for which we exist. To, to see God, to know him, and to be united with him. Uh, Job puts all this together perfectly. Vision, resurrection, transformation. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. Vision is, is powerful, even on a natural level. You see something, you ever said, oh, I wish I could unsee that. Uh, even on a natural level, a physical level, there's, there's this unitive effect that happens. There's a vision unites viewer and object, the one beholding and the one being beheld. And seeing is transformative. 1 John 3, 2, we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Some other scriptural example, examples, you remember the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 6, his, his life, the mission of his life, he's utterly transformed by this vision of the, whole, the heavenly throne room, what he sees. The angels circling about the throne of God, crying, holy, holy, holy. The, the disciples in, in our, in our post-resurrection gospel readings, they were utterly transformed when they saw the risen Jesus. In today's gospel, Luke chapter 24, uh, the disciples behold the crucified and risen Jesus who, who goes to great lengths 
Jesus is very patient. He goes to great lengths to demonstrate that he is not a ghost, but has indeed been raised bodily. Resurrection in Scripture does not mean afterlife. Resurrection in Scripture always means bodily resurrection. He confirms this to them, but they, they see him, they behold him, they touch him, but they're still not 100% certain, so Jesus eats a piece of broiled fish in their presence. He, he opens their minds to understand the scriptures, that the law and the prophets and the Psalms all proclaim the death and resurrection of the Messiah. Thus the disciples, along with the Apostle Paul, along with James, the kinsman of our Lord, along with more than 500 people who saw Christ at once. They saw him at the same time. So historical critical scholars will talk about, well, the disciples were hallucinating. Well, let me tell you something, not, and I really don't know this from personal experience, but it, it's okay if you do. Every, every uh, saint has a past, every sinner has a future. But if we were all to do acid right now, we might hallucinate but we would not all see the same thing. We would not have the same hallucination. So 500 people see the risen Jesus at once. And, and these people bear witness to the bodily resurrection of Jesus. They bear witness to us, those who have not yet seen but nevertheless believe, those of us who behold God with the eyes of our faith, as the colic said. Behold God, we behold God on the basis of, of the testimony of the apostles and the witnesses to the risen Jesus. We behold God by faith. So we really do see God, albeit through a glass darkly. We see him uh, in the scriptures. We see him in one another. We see him in the sacraments, particularly in the Holy Eucharist. And we, and we see him, we behold him by faith supremely in the crucified and risen Jesus, of whom the apostles were eyewitnesses. Can someone uh, close that door for me? Thank you so much. And this beholding of God with the eyes of faith is transformative. 1 John 3, 1. See. Behold, what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. So, so when we behold the love of God, when we meditate upon what he has done for us in and through his Son, Jesus Christ, and by the Spirit, when we consider that we are children of God, and that there is a future for us so glorious that John writes, what we will be has not yet been revealed. If we know we are children of God, it's amazing. Read back through today's lesson. We know that we are children of God, but we don't really know exactly what that means. But when he appears, we'll be like him. And So, brothers and sisters, when we behold in repentance and adoration the, the light of the world, we are transformed, meaning here in 1 John, that we cease from sin in pursuit of seeing God face to face. 1 John 3, 3. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. 
what is our hope? It's the resurrection. Particularly here in 1 John, it, it's seeing God face to face. So he's saying in order to attain to that hope, we, we purify ourselves. For what does our Lord say in the Sermon on the Mount, which I would contend is almost certainly in view here with the language of John? He says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now, the Apostle John is not peddling a sort of Pelagianism or works righteousness, saying, okay, purify yourself, pull yourselves up by the bootstraps, do what is good, avoid what is evil, and then you can go to heaven. No, this is about cooperation with grace. This is about the fruit of our union with Jesus. John, in his first epistle, it's important to understand this, he's not so much being prescriptive as he is being descriptive. He's just laying things out and saying, if you know Jesus, if you have fellowship with him, if you're walking with him, then X, Y, and Z. This is who you will be. This is how you will live. And the reality is that as we behold God, as we come into deeper union with him, as we pursue the vision of God, we will, as a matter of course, become more like him, which means that we will sin less. This is what John's saying, because John writes this. Very strong language. Did you catch it? In him there is no sin. That is, in Christ. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has either seen him or known him. Okay. So are we all going to hell? I mean, I mean, who's, who's sinned lately? Any, anybody? You don't have to raise your hand. Because I know the answer. It's no, absolutely not. Not a single one of you would dare to sin. This is funny. So what is John saying? As always, we have to, this is a letter. You have to read a letter from beginning to end. You have to read it in context. And if we do, we'll understand that chapter 3 has to be understood in light of chapter 1 and vice versa. In chapter 1, John writes, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So how do we square what he, the apostle says in chapter 1 with chapter 3? What John is getting at, I believe, it's not that the Christian, even the genuine, faithful Christian, it's not that the Christian never sins, but rather that he does not sin habitually. In other words, John is speaking of the person who actively clings unto sin rather un unto Christ. He's not speaking of the person who, when, when he or she falls, confesses his or her sins to Almighty God and is therefore cleansed from all unrighteousness. Again, John is being descriptive. John is giving markers of the true Christian. And later in chapter 3, he says this, and I'm paraphrasing, that the true child of God will reflect the Father above. He's saying as a matter of fact that the way in which you live demonstrates who your father is, whether, the God, whether God or the devil. But we're not reducing Christian Christianity to morality. Our primary aim as Christians is not the mere avoidance of sins. 
our aim is Christ, to know him, and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings. But John is, is describing the progress that happens, because in pursuing Christ, we will, we will cease more and more from sin. We'll become more like Jesus Christ in practice. And this is an objective marker of spiritual progress. Have you ever wanted to know, or do you ever want to know, if you're advancing in the spiritual life? I know that I do. Am I actually coming closer to Jesus? I'm actually more like Jesus now than I was, say, a year ago or 10 years ago. Well, I would say that your feelings aren't the best indicator. I mean, feeling, just, well, just say, well, I, I feel close to God. Because feelings can be deceptive. Feelings aren't uh, reliable. And oftentimes, and perhaps this will encourage you, when you don't feel particularly close to God, or, or you, you feel even like God is silent, and your, your prayers are barely making it up to your ceiling, much less uh, to the throne of God, often that is a sign that God is growing you and maturing you in your faith. Because what God often does, especially with those who are serious about advancing in the spiritual life and in holiness, he removes his hand so that you will seek his heart. He removes the the benefits, if you will, of fellowship with him so that you will love and follow God for God's own sake. We hear about this often in, in the lives of the saints. I remember uh, Mother Teresa saying she, she went about 15 years, a decade and a half, without, without sensing the, the, the presence or the voice of the Lord. So the, the reality is, is that we, we look... We, have, we can look at our actions. As, as maybe Sunday school, as it sounds, uh, we, we look at, okay, are we, are we sinning less than we were before? Are we, are we displaying uh, the virtue more than we were previously? I mean, our Lord says it this way. I mean, John's taking all his notes from Jesus. What is, Jesus says very clearly in what Matthew chapter 7. He says, a good tree brings forth good fruit, and a bad tree brings forth bad fruit. Just matter of fact. So you, you could perhaps ask yourself, okay, do an examination. You could say, okay, all right, uh, am I yelling at my spouse less than I <laughs> was a year ago? You know, I was doing it every day. Now it's like once a month, okay? Uh, I was, I was uh, very frustrated at work, and I, w I was kicking the Duke of Delafield, the dog, uh, every single day in frustration. Now I only kick him once every six months. We've seen some progress. It's a sign of progress in the Christian life, and that's what John is getting at. And, and again, this progress it is not by our own naked moral effort, but it is the fruit of our union with Christ. This is John's argument, essentially. He says that Christ is sinless. And in chapter 1, speaking of God, he says, In him is no darkness at all. And that's a double negative in Greek, which we can't do uh, in, in English because we do a double negative, then that's a positive, right? That's, this is a double negative. There's two particles of negation. So it's in him there is no darkness at all, not even a little bit. 
Christ is sinless, in him is no darkness at all. And if you are, if we are in fellowship with him, walking with him, seeking him in prayer and in sacrament and in the reading of scripture, if we are living in recollection, which means that we live the entirety of our lives uh, conscious as much as we can be, this is part of what it means to pray without ceasing, that we're living our lives before Almighty God and for his glory. When we come into this deeper union with Christ, it transforms us. As we are in fellowship with Christ, we become more and more like him. Brothers and sisters, I just implore you to, to seek the face of Christ, to look for him, to realize that he is there in the scriptures, he's there in prayer, he's there in the sacraments, he's, he's there in one another. We see the likeness of Christ in our brothers and sisters in Christ, and that spurs us on to love Jesus more, to follow him more. It spurs us on to good works. And above all else, behold with the eye of your soul, ever and always, the love of God demonstrated in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Marvel at the fact that we have been adopted as God's children and that we have for us an inheritance a glorious resurrection beyond imagination that God holds out for us something um, that has not in, that no eye has seen, no ear has heard, neither has it entered into the heart of man. The things which God has prepared for those who love Him, brothers and sisters, in pursuit of that hope, purify yourself, cooperate with the grace of God. Pursue Christ Jesus, so that at the last you shall see him face to face. Amen.